This podcast is a production of Schweitzer, a United Methodist Church, transforming lives by making disciples of Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. We are uh, talking these days about the road ahead. We've been journeying with the Apostle Paul, and we've gone to various places that Paul has gone to. We've gone to Damascus. We've gone to Antioch. We've gone to Athens, and today we're, we are going to Corinth. And one of the things that we notice as we journey with Paul is that there's a lot of parallel between his culture and our culture, between our world and his world. And this is certainly true as we visit today the city of Corinth. Corinth was a fascinating city back in the day of Paul. It was a huge city by standards of the first century with 250,000 people crowded together, very compact, on this seaport city, which became the political center. And in this city, which was thriving in commerce and thriving in business, the Apostle Paul went to from Athens to visit, staying 18 months. Our group was privileged to go to Corinth this past uh, fall, and as we walked the Lexicon Road, it was a road that made its way through the marketplace in Corinth, and it was about probably 20 feet or so wide or 30 feet wide. We can show the next slide there. And as you walked the road, you made your way around through the Agora, the marketplace, and as we just keep moving through the slides, there were various ruins in which we went through, imagining the different shops, the storefronts, the places, and thinking about how the Apostle Paul might have set up shop there in one of those places himself with Aquila and Priscilla, who were tent makers. And so it was in the marketplace, it was in the place of business that Paul thrived and worked for 18 months. There were two temples, however, that dominated Corinth. The temple to Apollo stood in the midst of the marketplace. Next slide. Well, that's not Apollo. That's actually Carrie and Gail Randolph, just to give you a feel that we were there. But the next slide was the temple to Apollo in the midst of the marketplace. And Apollo was a god of sex. And around him were statues of nude boys in all kinds of poses, reminding us that in this commerce city, in this seaport of sailors, in this place of thriving business, there was no greater business than the business that had to do with human sexuality in the various poses, in the various ways in which it led many people to taking advantage of little boys. But the dominant temple of all was the temple to Aphrodite. You look just to the south, 1,900 feet up in the air, and you can still see, this was taken from the place we were standing in the marketplace, this ruins of the temple, a 
thousand prostitutes visited this temple to the Greek goddess of love and beauty and procreation. It was said that no man could enter Corinth without becoming corrupted. And so when the guys were getting on the bus as we were leaving, I was congratulating them for being able to do that. But to Corinthianize meant to fornicate. And there was nothing that these Corinthian girls would not do for any man who entered the temple. Corinth was in many ways a mess. It was said by John Pollock as he makes this observation about the Apostle Paul bringing the good news there, that if the love of Christ Jesus could take root in Corinth, the most populated, wealthy, commercially-minded, and sex-obsessed city of Western Europe, it surely must be powerful anywhere. And so Paul takes the faith to this city that is filled with all kinds of immigrants, not many people, uh, many people uprooted, some people, Jewish people, in fact, from Rome, into this site, into this place, in which uh, nowhere in the Greek-Roman world was there such an obsession with sex. And so let's read in the Scripture from the 18th chapter of Acts as Paul makes his journey there. Then Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And there he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy where Claudius Caesar deported all Jews from Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers just as he was. Each Sabbath found Paul at the synagogue trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike. Then he left and went to the home of Titius, Justus, a Gentile who worshipped God and lived next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and everyone in his household believed in the Lord. Many others in Corinth also heard Paul became believers and were baptized. It's interesting that Paul meets up with Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla, who's been abandoned, have had to leave Rome. They were Jews. They were also believers in Jesus. I always have wondered, how was it that they met up? You get this idea that it was providence, it was God that was behind this reality of them joining up, tent makers, and being able to work together and to work for Jesus in this, in this city that had very few believers. How many of you know the sign of the fish? You've seen that in some car bumpers and not quite as popular today as it once was, but it's very popular in the Christian movement of the first century. Especially, it was a code. Uh, people that were persecuted or threatened by the faith. And the sign of the fish was, it might have been that one person like Paul would have made a drawing with one part of the fish and then if you were a believer in Jesus, you knew what this sign was about. You might take your other foot of the other person and complete the fish. 
the fish had the Greek letters ichthus. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And so it's in the midst of Corinth, this commercialized city, that the Apostle Paul begins to create a beachhead for Christianity, developing other leaders in this movement. And in the midst of all this, he deals with all kinds of issues, all kinds of problems. You think we got problems today. The, the town of Corinth and the early church of Corinth had all kinds of problems. And after 18 months, Paul writes letters, many letters, at least three of them, two of which we have included in the New Testament. And there's no topic that he writes more about, especially in that first letter, than the topic of human sexuality. He devotes three chapters, the better part of three chapters, chapters 5 and 6 and 7 of 1 Corinthians 13, as he speaks to the Corinthian Christians in calling them how to live faithfully and distinctively different than the culture around them. Here he writes to them, don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her. For the scripture says the two are united into one. But the, man, but the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? Do not belong, you do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. What is Paul saying to the Corinthians? Don't hang out with Apollo. Stop visiting Aphrodite's temple. Don't you know that you are a temple? Don't worship in those sites. Don't go to those places. Let your body be a temple where God is worshipped. Don't live like a Corinthian. Friends, uh, I want to speak straight with you this morning. And I do this with a pastoral heart and a spirit. But we too are not called to live like Corinthians. We're not called to live like Americans. We're called to live like people who are members of the body of Christ. And in the midst of, of this reality, you and I, in many ways, are living in Corinth. 
And what strikes me about how Paul writes and addresses these issues is that he doesn't call the believers, the minority in the culture, to picket the temples. He doesn't call them to march on the temples. He doesn't call them to try to change the laws in the temples. But he does lift up an alternative lifestyle that is different from the culture. And the alternative lifestyle is celibacy in singleness and fidelity in marriage. You and I are living in a culture that we have our temples to the goddesses of sexuality. There's places that you can go to in Springfield that is all about that kind of stuff. But probably the place that we find access to the easiest is a smartphone where you can go so easily to all kinds of pornographic sites to satisfy and fill your mind and spirit with the things that produce such a severe addiction and obsession in our time. In fact, 25% of all search engines head for pornographic sites. One in every four times someone goes on the internet visiting a website, they're visiting a site of pornography in our culture, in our country. This is being described as every young man's battle, but it's not just young men, and it's not just men. One-third of all persons today who are known to be addicted to sexual obsession and pornography and sexual immorality are female. And it's not just a generational thing. One of the leading diseases among senior adults is STDs. This is a reality that is pervasive across our culture in every walk of life. One out of every two divorces that occur today, one of the primary reasons that is given is pornography. And while it's not just a male problem, oftentimes a female feels very much slighted in a relationship where she cannot compete with the visions of a male a male has on these sites. I want to read to you the words of a female from a female perspective of what it's like when a husband becomes addicted. This is how a woman feels. There's a strong sense of betrayal that enters the marriage. The wife has believed that she is able to hold that intimate place in her husband's life. She has made herself vulnerable to him in a way that she will not with anyone else. 
The wife has thought that she is uniquely seen as the source of her husband's sexual desire and that she alone will meet that need in his life. Learning of her husband's involvement with pornography feels as if another person has been invited into the marriage. She is able to look more beautiful than the wife will ever look, be more sexy than the wife will ever feel, and be available in a way that the wife can never be. On a deep level, the trust has been broken, and she is helpless to do anything about it. It is a profound hurt and pain that strikes at the core of her being. So, friends, we sense in our spirit that Paul is right. We're talking about something very sacred here. We're talking about something very holy here. We're talking about something that can offer us life and joy in the great gift of human sexuality. Or we can look at the ways in which it is largely distorted and the ways in which it is maligned and the ways in which the river runs outside its banks, destroying all kinds of relationships and hindering so many people from experiencing the true intimacy and the joy that can happen in a bonded relationship within the institution of marriage. Now, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of false narratives, and one of those false narratives is that um, we're, we're angels. Uh, the church has been guilty of this. That over the years, the church has sometimes uh, provided this false narrative that somehow sexual desire or sexual urges is not something that we should be dealing with or that we shouldn't be celebrating. I remember my seminary professor saying to some of us single seminarians years ago, some of you are praying that God will take away your sex drive. Be thankful that God does not answer all your prayers. But in the midst of this, let's trace very quickly some of the ways in which the church has distorted the message of sexuality. Origen, who was a third century Christian leader, dealt with the reality of sexual desires in his own life by simply castrating himself. In the Council of Nicaea that got a lot of things right about Christianity, in the fourth century, made the mistake of suggesting that bishops become celibate. And so you began to see this emergence that if someone was a spiritual leader or if you were really a spiritual person, then human sexuality and marriage was not an option for you. In the Middle Ages, it actually had 252 days set aside where within marriage, couples could not have sex. The Puritans, however, was an amazing exception to this. The Puritans get a lot of rap about a lot of things. But the Puritans would teach that men and women in the, in the enjoyment of a marriage relationship should stir themselves up conjugally with all the heat and the vigor that they could. But you didn't think you was going to hear that this morning when you came to church. The Roman Catholic Church over the years has tended to sanitize and to saint people, bring more people into sainthood who are celibate singles than people who are married. And so we have to say, you know what, church? Um, we're not angels. But we're also, the other false narrative is that 
we're not animals. And that's the narrative of our culture today, that we're animals. And so whenever you have sexual desires and sexual appetites, it's okay to satisfy those desires in any way that you choose and please. You know, Carrie Fisher is someone that just passed away recently. And she was the, the young star on the first Star Wars. She made the, the movie a year ago as an older woman. She's passed away. And what's striking about her tragic story in part was in the making of the original Star Wars, she had a sexual rendezvous with Harrison Ford. And Harrison Ford is in his 30s, and she's a teenager. And that story gets played out in so many different venues, in so many different ways, in a culture that believes that human sexuality is a recreational sport. And I'm here to say that that is wrong, anywhere, anytime, any place. It doesn't matter who's doing it. It doesn't matter if it's a celebrity or a politician or any leader. It is always, always wrong. And in this sense of what's going on in life is, we're looking for intimacy, but we don't know how to find it. Dallas Willard, years ago, spoke to this when he said that intimacy is a spiritual hunger of the human soul, and we cannot escape it. We're looking for intimacy. We get that. But, but now we keep hammering the sex button in the hope that a little intimacy might finally dribble out in vain. Such faithfulness is violated by adultery in the heart as well as adultery in the body. No, we're not animals. We're better than animals. We're more than animals. But the Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesians. He's writing about the Corinthians. He's writing about Americans. He's writing about us. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. So we're not animals, and we're not angels. What are we? We're human beings. We're human beings made in the likeness and wonderment of God. We have souls. We have spirits. We have sexual desires. We have ways in which we can honor God with those are ways that we can dishonor God. And it's to this issue that the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians so strongly. And he says, you know, beyond erotic love, friends, there's the agape love. There's the love of God. And that agape love, that love of God, can triumph and bring into alignment erotic love. Because true love, isn't something that takes advantage of another person to fulfill your own desires and any whim and fancy. No, real love is patient and kind and just and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things and doesn't keep record of wrong. Jesus spoke to this when he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And so, friends, I'm not here 
to judge anyone. I am really not here to shame anyone. I don't know how anyone can live and breathe in this culture and not be affected from one degree to another by this obsession. But what I want to do is to lift up an alternative where we are filled with the love of God and the passion of Jesus Christ triumphs over all forms of love and urges. That purity has to do not just with cleansing, but with integrity. Do you know what it means to be a person of integrity? Not just honesty, but it means that everything about you is whole. In other words, you're the same person at home, in a sense, as you are at work. Oh, I know we live our professional lives, and I know there's boundaries. I, I get that. But essentially, we're not fake. We don't pretend to be something in this category of life and different in another. No, it is the love of Jesus Christ that makes us really, truly whole, integrates the whole thing. And nothing makes you more happy and more holy and more wonderful and life-giving than to be a person of integrity. Who doesn't, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't desire that? One of the things that I, I've learned this week when I went to a, a, a webinar on this subject is that this is not simply a, a spiritual issue. It's a chemical issue. That uh, if we can have that one graphic up, that uh, dopamines is something that every healthy person has. It's, it's a release in the brain that leads us to, to pleasure and to joy. And a healthy person needs a healthy dose of dopamines. But what has happened in our culture is that we have so many wonderful things in life. Did you see that incredible sunrise this morning? And yet we seem to be so unhappy. And so we're looking for all kinds of different pleasures. And, and so we try to trump up our pleasure by, by going to different ways of medicating our displeasure. And this graphic, which is difficult for you to see, but let me speak to it, that on this webinar I went to, I learned something I never knew before. Now, the first two primary addictions in our culture are not a surprise to me. Meth and cocaine. And you've heard it once, you've heard it a thousand times, where people who are addicted to meth or cocaine will either wind up in prison or dead. Doesn't have to be the case, usually is. But do you know that the third primary addiction in our culture today, the strongest force of addiction is pornography, just under those top two. So this is, friends, not simply a spiritual problem. It's a chemical issue. And there's many people who really, really love God, who struggle with alcohol. There's many, many people who love God and in this culture are struggling with sexual addiction because their brains have been rewired and the pathways have created these different sites that they go to. 
And with the temple so readily available all the time, it's hard not to go there. And we, as a church, we're here to help people. We're here to offer ourselves ways in which we can offer people an alternative lifestyle. And not to shame people or to judge people, but to be there with them. One of my uh, friends and is Blake Brewer, and I'm going to ask Blake to come up and join me right now. Blake is Stumo Director of Ministry. He and Amanda are members of our church. We're glad they're here. He's a great leader of college ministry, and uh, they're members of our church. And uh, Blake has a ministry to young people that is, is dynamic. Um, this ministry is one of those things that, and I just got to applaud of what is going on there at Missouri State. And uh, Blake has a specific opportunity that he's going to be offering on this campus for men of any age. So, Blake, I'll let you speak to it. All right, appreciate it, Pastor Bob. As Pastor Bob said, my name is Blake Brewer. I've been doing college ministry for the last 10 years, five years at the University of Arkansas where I graduated, and then my wife and I moved here five years ago to start uh, a ministry at Missouri State. And when I first started in campus ministry, as I'm trying to help guys, my wife's trying to help the ladies, and I'm trying to help guys become men, um, start a relationship with God, I wanna equip them that one day they can be a great father, they can be a great husband. And so one of the areas that I want to talk about with them is the area of pornography. The question I used to ask guys was, hey, Man, have you ever looked at pornography? Um, has this ever been a struggle for you? That is not the question that I ask anymore. The question that I ask guys is, hey, what is your story with pornography? Because since the invention of high-speed internet, since the invention of the smartphone, the question is, isn't if, but how much? Um, and so every guy that I come, come across in Missouri State on some level has been affected by pornography, as Pastor Bob said. And so we said, hey, as a ministry, if we're going to help guys become men, become strong and whole, whole rounded in, um, in life, hey, we got to get a grip on this. And so we started searching for different ministries that we could partner with. And we came across a ministry out of California called Pure Desire Ministries, led by a man named Ted Roberts. Um, he's a former Air Force pilot. He's a man's man. And he had developed some curriculum to help some guys get through this. And he was seeing um, great results. Um, and so one of the things that he created was a five-week um, video series. And so we started watching this video series. And through this video series, it's very uh, somatic. Like you've got um, planes fighting each other. You've got him teaching. You've got scientists learning things. You start to learn about the brain and the neurochemistry and you start to uh, learn a battle plan for freedom and you learn how to equip others in this area. And so as I'm watching that video, I'm like, man, this is incredible. These guys are learning it, they're loving it. I wish every guy in America could watch the, and go through this video series and learn these things. I wish every guy in Springfield, I wish every guy at Schweitzer at my church could sit through this and learn these things because we've all been affected by it and we all need to learn how, how to deal with this so we can equip others to deal with these things. We may not personally be dealing with it, but we know someone that is, whether they've told us or that or not. And so I'm excited that we get to, as a church, we are going to watch um, this video series called Conquer Series, starting February 27th 
So Tuesday at 7 o'clock. And so I would be excited for every guy at Schweitzer to attend this. And so you might be thinking, hey, is this for me? Man, no matter where you're at, this is for you. I would love for you to come. This may be something that you don't personally struggle with, but we need men that understand this so we can help the next generation as they're struggling with this. Ladies, your husband might be sitting there thinking, hey, uh, that sounds kind of interesting. I want to go to it. But as you can imagine, they might be thinking, hmm, my wife, if I go to this, my wife is going to think that I have a problem. And so therefore, they're not going to come. Ladies, please free your husband up, encourage them to go to this. The, the guys that come to this, when they come in, I'm not thinking, oh, they must have a problem. I'm thinking, man, that is a courageous guy, a guy who will come and is willing to learn for themselves, not just for themselves, but so they can help other men in their family, whether it's their children or their grandchildren. And so I would love to invite all of you guys to come and, and maybe you can't make a five-week commitment. Maybe you just say, hey, I, wanna, I can come to the first one. So Tuesday, February, is it 28th or 27th? February 28th. 28th, okay. All right. I, I think you ought to be a preacher, don't you think? <laughs> don't you give him a hand? Uh, friends, it's interesting that uh, through Christian prayer and meditation, the same lights same parts of the brain that light up through addiction to whether it's chocolate or alcohol or sexual obsession. There's a different alternative. To be able to connect with God, to let your mind and your heart and your spirit find the God that is inside of you and to become a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's the place where I want my brain and my heart and my life to go. Uh, let's stand together and let's sing this prayer, this wish. God, be thou my vision.